Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through them you may be par- become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. Before we open God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask his guidance and direction this morning. Father, we are so grateful that we have your word. It is your truth that is transformative because it is true, because it is your word, because you have revealed it to us. And yet, Father, there is so much pressure in the world around us to compromise, to go with a better solution, to basically follow in the sin of Eve, looking at the forbidden fruit and seeing that it was good to her eyes. Too often we look at the world around us and think that their ideas, their thinking looks good, sounds good, feels good. It must be a better idea. But, Father, we see that that is the path of death. As Proverbs says, there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. So, Father, we pray today as we study that we would be challenged to recognize that throughout your word, the focal point is changing the way we think before we change the way we live, that we so often put the a cart before the horse and try to change the way we we live before we change the way we think. So, Father, help us in this to understand these things we study this morning. In Christ's name, amen. We continue our study this morning in Ephesians. We are in Ephesians four seventeen through 19. And this section, these three verses, are a summation, really, of man's basic problem. We did an overview of this section and these verses last week, and I'm going to read them before I begin with comments. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk, as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. This, these three verses set up the shift that will occur in verse 20, Uh, where Paul then begins to tell them how uh, Christians are supposed to think and how they are uh, supposed to live. So this morning, after last week's sort of a flyover uh, summary of the first uh, 
three and a half chapters in Ephesians and just summarizing the flow of these three verses, I want to take some time uh, to drill down on this because this is a an extremely important passage to understand. One of the neglected areas of theology is known as anthropology or biblical anthropology. When most of us hear of the topic of an academic discipline of anthropology, we think perhaps of archaeologists, we think of sociologists, and indeed anthropology or the study of the human race is part of uh, sociology. But long before we had the ideas of sociology, which didn't come around until the early 1800s, We were talking in theology about biblical anthropology. In other words, what does the Bible teach about us as human beings? What does the Bible say about us as mankind? Who is man? What is man made of? What is the nature of the human being? The Bible says that we were all created in the image and likeness of God. That sets biblical thought against the thought of every other religious system and every philosophical system uh, that has existed in the history of the human race because all other systems are ultimately grounded on idolatry where they create God after their own image, just the reverse. But God said he created us after his image. That is so important because that means our starting point is that each of us has significance and value and meaning because we are in the image of God. When you come to the covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter 9 and God authorizes capital punishment for those who commit murder, It is important to notice that God doesn't say, well, you need to restrain people, and so this is going to act as a restraint on them if we have uh, capital punishment. That isn't the reason. That's the reason a lot of sociologists and political theorists give, but that's not the biblical reason. The reason is because if you take a human life, you're taking the life of someone who's created in the image of God that every life, every human being has value, no matter what they've done, no matter who they are, no matter what their economic class, no matter what their ethnicity, every human being is created in the image and likeness of God. But that is not what the world says. The world is comprised of a worldview that is summarized by the word paganism, the word I like to use. Every religious system in the world other than that which is grounded on the Bible, so that's basically the uh, foundational beliefs of, of the Jewish people and Christianity. As I said last time, that excludes Islam because Islam grew out of a polytheistic worship where Muhammad just took one of 360 gods and made that the one god, but it was still grounded in this previous pagan worship. The god he chose was the moon god, uh, Allah. And uh, when you look at uh, flags of Islamic nations, you always see the crescent moon, and that represents Allah. He was just taken out of this pantheon of 359 other gods. But paganism has always had a different view of mankind. 
paganism always sees the universe as eternal. And how many times just in the last week have you heard someone say or seen this in some TV show where somebody comments, well, the universe must want me to do this, or the universe must want me to do that. And they have imputed personality and will to the universe. But the universe is purely material. There's no thought in that which is purely material. It is just idolatry of the material universe. And so that it forms the foundation of the basic pagan worldview that is governing most of the of the world today, and that is pure materialism. And so in pure materialism, a human being is the product of time plus chance. You, you and I, in their view, are just the result of an accidental uh, electrical discharge on a mass of protoplasm that somehow over millions of years developed into some sort of sentient uh, creature. And that is just bogus because that basically means we are purely, purely material. Whereas the Bible says we are composed of material, physical bodies. Now that's a vast difference. And when you look at a human being and all you see is something that is the accidental result of uh, millions of years of evolution, and that as a result of that, they're purely physical, they're purely material, there's no immaterial soul, uh, there's nothing in, in, in eternal about them whatsoever that when they die they just go back into the ground and they go back into um, back to dust and nothing, nothingness. But the Bible says that man was created with an immaterial soul and an hu- immaterial human spirit. The contrast it comes down to how people are treated. In a worldview where man is the accidental product of evolution, we necessarily must view human beings as nothing more than a collection of chemicals and electrical charges. That's all we are. No wonder we have kids growing up that are discouraged, that are depressed, that are killing one another, that are doing these horrible things because they are treated and told that they are nothing more than an accident. And they understand that, and they understand that this this is depressing to them. They have no hope. They have no meaning. Uh, they have no value. And this is this is self-destructive. It flows out of the psychology that has developed since... Uh, the late 19th century, you have Freudian psychology, Jungian psychology, you have Maslow, you have actually uh, hundreds of different models of psychology and human behavior, but ultimately they all treat human beings as nothing more than material beings that are the product of these various random uh, genetic uh, uh, determinative features plus um, uh, plus these electrical discharges, and it's all material. So you end up basically with some form of a deterministic philosophy where we, the society and people can all be manipulated. In fact, back in the 60s, there were a number of elitist thinkers. Uh, Timothy Leary is a name known to many because of his experiments with LSD, but there were numerous others who believed that in order to solve the sociological problems of the human race, to get rid of violence, to get rid of racism, to get rid of criminality, what the government needed to do 
was to basically spike the uh, water systems of the country with some kind of drugs or LSD or something like that, and then everybody would be uh, calm and peaceful. The world sees our problem as something that can easily be fixed through chemicals or through some other kind of material solution because they don't understand what man's real problem is. And according to the Bible, the real problem is sin. But if your starting point is human viewpoint paganism, this is really going to impact psychology. Psychology is one of the most insidious, dangerous, uh, false views of mankind around. Because psychology is, humanistic psychology is predicated on this evolutionary view of what makes us a human being. Uh, Freud hated the concept of sin. And so in humanistic psychology, the problem isn't sin, and so therefore the solution is always going to be fake, fraudulent, and ineffective. But that's where we are today. Uh, And that influences so many things. It influences a business psychology to some degree. It influences marketing. It influences uh, management styles. It influences politics. It influences the laws that are passed by legislature that is dominated by people who do not believe the Bible and who believe man alone apart from God can bring in a perfect world. And you have a, a shift towards Marxism, which has borrowed the idea of a future a perfect world under the authority of Jesus Christ and has secularized it and taken God and Christ out of it and said that says that on the basis of certain economic principles where you have a government that controls everything, we can bring in a utopic society. But everything about Marxism, everything about socialism is uh, antagonistic to a Christian, to a biblical worldview because its view of man, its view of what makes us distinctive and unique is, is false. And so because they have a false starting point, then whatever their solutions are not only are false, but they're destructive and they will end up destroying any, any uh, uh, culture, any society that is built upon those I- ideas. And so uh, we have to recognize that the basic problem is going, to be, is going to be sin. And I remember when I was a seminary student having a discussion. It was a hot topic back in the 70s. Unfortunately, I think we've sort of lost this battle. This hot topic of uh, was there really such a thing as a Christian psychology? And yes, in one sense, there is a view of a biblical psychology, which was held by many theologians who would study what the Bible says about the soul and the spirit and what the Bible taught about sin and about how that affects human behavior. But that is not what is known as Christian psychology today. In fact, the reality in most Christian psychological models is they've just taken some model uh, from the secular world and they've baptized it by adding a lot of proof texts to their principles. And, and if you go through and you really study most of those texts uh, in context in the Bible, you realize that's not what that's talking about at all. 
And this has led to numerous problems within Christianity after 60 years of so-called Christian psychology. What do we see in the Christian pew? We see a divorce rate that is at least as bad as that outside of the church. We see a morality that is just about the same as that which is outside of the church. You go around to the vast number of these mega evangelical churches and you don't see any kind of knowledge about the Bible, any understanding of the spiritual life, any understanding of a spiritual walk. And this is a real problem. Because at the very core, there is not anyone wrestling with what this passage and Romans 1 and others are actually saying. So what we have to do is develop a biblical understanding of the nature of human beings and an understanding of what causes these sociological problems such as gun violence, criminality, judicial reform, uh, biblical justice, racism, poverty, the breakdown of marriage and family. And if we don't begin with a biblical understanding of human beings as God created them and that the problem is sin, then we're never going to come up with an adequate solution. And the solution cannot be presented from government We try to legislate these things, but the legislation is not predicated upon an understanding of mankind as fallen sinners. In fact, most of the legislation somehow seeks to absolve human beings of responsibility for their behavior, and they seek to provide solutions uh, that that, uh, ignore personal individual responsibility because we're just made up of these deterministic uh, molecules and chemicals and we're just material, so therefore uh, we're just doing certain things because that's the way we're made, so let's treat it with chemicals or electric shocks or what, whatever it may be. So we have to look at what the Scripture says. Now, Paul starts, as I pointed out last time, by reminding us of where he started this particular chapter. And so he says, This I say, therefore and testify in the Lord, and he gives this basic command that you, that is you, these Gentile and Jewish believers who are now united together in one body called the church, and they are in a local church that represents this in Ephesus, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Now, at the very basic, basic level, what do we see here? We see that we are not to continue to live after we're saved like we thought and lived uh, before we were saved. Bottom line is we're to think and we are to live differently. What I want you to want to point out initially is notice the emphasis, is the emphasis on society is the emphasis on culture or is the emphasis or emotion or is the emphasis here on thinking you have these descriptions the futility of the mind not emotions not culture it's the mind it's thinking wrong things having their understanding darkened uh, alienated from the life of God that's the fu- a fundamental problem because of the ignorance that is in them, 
because of the blindness or the hardness of their heart. All these terms have to do with thinking. Christianity is about how you think. Do you think about life in, on the basis of God as the creator? Do you think in terms of biblical reality or do you think in terms of non-biblical reality? Those are the only options. Now, non-biblical reality may have a, a million different flavors, but it's all non-biblical. Biblical reality has one flavor. It's God's view, which he has expressed uh, in, in the Scripture. And so uh, the emphasis in Scripture is on not an external change of behavior, but an internal change of thought. We see that from what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 25, and 26, and a parallel in Luke eleven thirty nine, where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. And unfortunately, there's a lot of this kind of superficial legalism within Christianity where the whole idea is a form of morality, just do these things, and it's all external without teaching people to think differently, that a believer is not to think like a Gentile unbeliever. A Christian is to think on the basis of the Bible, And if you think on the basis of the Bible, it's going to change how we live. It's going to change the things we're attracted to. But we don't do it superficially. You have to do it internally. And he says that um, inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. And then he says, blind Pharisee. Now pay attention to that word. We're not going to get there this morning. We're going to get there next week, this emphasis on blindness in terms of spiritual blindness and what that means. But he says to the Pharisees, you're spiritually blind. These are the best-trained biblical scholars in Israel at the time. Most of them had the Torah memorized word for word from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Deuteronomy, and a large number of them had the entire Old Testament memorized. And he says they're spiritually blind and ignorant. Now, that's how you win friends and influence people. Jesus loved everybody. He did. Not the liberal love, but the biblical love, which recognizes the truth and telling the truth, even though it may offend somebody, even though it's going to step on people's toes, uh, even though it is not culturally acceptable, and somebody's going to want to cancel you. And yes, indeed, they tried to cancel Jesus, didn't they? But he came out of that grave after three days. You can't ultimately cancel the truth. The truth will always, always come out. But a question we should ask is, how did these Pharisees become blind, and what is the nature of this blindness? We're going to see that idea of being spiritually blind is also applied to Gentiles. So that's part of our fallen nature, and we have to understand what that means, and that's part of what we will do today and next week as as well. And so what what Paul goes on to say here is uh, that we should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. The rest of the Gentiles indicates that they were once part of that group. 
but now they are different. They're taken out of that group so that they are no longer considered part of that group. So you have unbelieving Gentiles and you have believing Gentiles and also uh, believing Jews. And that this is this whole uh, description here of verses 18 and 19 is a powerful indictment of the behavior of a culture that is without Christ, without God, and without the Scriptures. Paul begins this by saying, This I say and testify in the Lord, that this simply refers to what he is about to say, the statement that you should no longer walk like Gentiles walk. Uh, the fact that he says, I testify in the Lord, is typical of Paul because what he is doing is he is uh, relating what he is teaching back to the authority of Christ. And so that's his ultimate authority. This isn't Paul's opinion. This is the what God has revealed to him and what he is to be teaching, uh, teaching the Gentiles. And so he says... Um, this, that, that therefore at the beginning, he's going taking us back to the very beginning, the first three verses of this chapter. And so this is a continuation of a thought that he diverted from, from about verse 4 down to verse 16. Now he's coming back to it. And so the beginning of the chapter, he said, therefore, that is, therefore, the conclusion as a result of chapters 1, 2, and 3 He said, I, the prisoner of the Lord, strongly urge you to conduct your life in a manner worthy of the exalted position to which you were summoned. Now, I have used that phrase, conduct your life, because that's what the metaphorical meaning of walking is. It is how you live your life. Technically, it's how you think and how you live your life. You can't separate uh, your thought life from your overt life. He goes on to say in verse 2, with all genuine humility and gentle kindness, with patience, putting up with one another in love, and being diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So he's saying, in light of that, therefore, because of what I said earlier, you are no longer to walk as the rest of the Gentiles. You're to walk... As I translated it earlier, you're to walk, you're to conduct your life in a manner worthy of the exalted position to which you were summoned. And that means you don't live like you did before you were saved. You don't live like the rest of the Gentiles. He's drawing a hard and fast distinction between those who are living on the basis of God's word and those who are not. This word walk is the Greek word peripateo, which is physically just refers to walking. But it had a figurative meaning that described a person's way of life. We often talk about the Christian way of life. That's just another phrase for the Christian walk. It's their lifestyle, the way a person conducts his life. And we live in a world today that wants to validate everybody's lifestyle, no matter how perverted it is, no matter how destructive it may be. Uh, We want to validate that because we don't want anybody to think they're under condemnation. But the Bible says that we were all born under condemnation. We're all sinners. We're all fallen. 
Uh, it's not a statement of pride or arrogance or judgment from any of us. It's just a statement of truth. We're all born in that state of condemnation, and Christ came to save sinners and to pay for sin. So some of these conclusions that we reach from the statement uh, that we are to walk differently is that we are to, we ought to and should think differently. And by that I don't mean what we think about, that's content, but how we think. People are not taught how to think very well. And we are. To, uh, this involves the methodology, what they're thinking is based on. Now, this starts with our starting point, the authority of the Scripture. If you're going to think biblically, you have to recognize that God is the starting point, not your experience. It, it's not your autonomous or independent logic. You read about miracles and say, I've never seen anything like that. That can't happen. See, what you're doing there is you're using your limited finite reason to judge the veracity of Scripture. We can't start there. We have to start with the presupposition that this is the Word of God and that this, this is true. So we don't start with empiricism, rationalism, or mysticism. We start with what the Word of God says. Psalm 36.9 exemplifies this. There David writes, For with you, talking to God, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Light is a picture of illumination of truth. If any of you have been down deep inside of a cave or cavern, uh, you know what it is to be in almost absolute darkness. You go down, usually there's some sort of large room, all the lights are turned off, and you can't see your hand in front of your face. How much light does it take for you to be able to read a book down there? You just strike a match and you can read. The, the, just that light from one match will illuminate the whole room, and you see truth. And it is in, light, in God's light then that we are able to think accurately. Now, that doesn't mean that unbelievers can't think of some truth. They can all come to some level of truth. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. God said, you may eat of the fruit of the tree of any tree in the garden except this one. Now, they had, were given a responsibility to take care of the garden. And so as they were taking care of the garden, let's imagine that God hadn't told them anything. They would have no idea that this one tree was a tree that would bring death into their existence. And so they could learn a lot of things as they looked at all of these other trees. They could notice that the fruit of this tree is red, the fruit of this tree is yellow, the fruit of this this tree is is a little browner, uh, some of it was sweeter, some of it not so sweet. Uh, they could observe all kinds of trees. That some trees were more like bushes, some trees were taller. Uh, all these different trees produced all kinds of different things, and the more they studied, the more they analyzed, the more they could learn true things, lowercase t. But everything had to be understood within the framework that they could not eat of this one tree, that there was an exception. And that one tree, if they disobeyed God, then that would bring death, alienation from God. Uh, 
into their existence. So, see, when we talk about the fact that you have to make the Bible your ultimate priority, uh, we're not saying that the Bible is an absolute textbook on history or the Bible is an absolute textbook on biology or the Bible is an absolute textbook on chemistry or geography, but that the Bible gives you the critical information needed in order to properly understand everything in these different fields. So that if you looked at all of the data that Adam and Eve could have learned from just looking at the trees, just empirical observation, you could come up with tens of thousands of observations, all of which would be true. But in terms of how that fit within the overall framework of, of creation, they could not truly understand it without understanding that there was a difference between everything and a, and a difference with the fruit of the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That gave ultimate meaning to everything else. So we can only understand life within the framework of what God has revealed. It is in his light that we see light. It's only when we presuppose his truth that we can understand all truth. So that's our starting point. And it's how we think, not what we think. But the second point is the content of our thinking. Not only do we change how we think, but we change what we think about. Philippians 4, 8, and 9. In Philippians 4, 8, and 9, we read, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, Whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And then the next verse, the things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, I want you to think a little bit about this verse. You have a number of words used here that describe certain conditions. True, noble, just, pure, lovely, good report, virtue, praiseworthy. What do those words have in common? They presuppose that there is an absolute so that you can know that something is true in contrast to something that is not true. Something that has virtue versus things that don't have virtue. Things that are noble versus things that are not noble. Things that are just in contrast to things that are not just. In other words, you can't really apply this unless you presuppose that there are moral absolutes in the universe. And moral absolutes don't spring out of time plus chance. Moral absolutes are grounded in the character of God. So we have to presuppose the righteous, just, loving, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent veracity of God in order to even talk about these words. 
These words presuppose that there are moral absolutes, and those moral absolutes are grounded in an unchanging, an immutable deity. You can't even talk about them. That's one of the things I've always thought it's kind of ironic when you talk with skeptics, with those who are attacking Christianity, and they say, how can you love a God who allows a war like this in Ukraine? How can you, how can you believe in a God who allowed the Holocaust? How can you believe in a God who allows suffering and who allows evil? The starting point to refute that is, where do you get the idea of evil? Where do you get the idea of justice? Where do you get the idea of good or bad? Those are terms that only come into existence if you have an eternal reference point that is good, that is perfect righteousness, that is justice, and that has revealed what those things are. Uh, The way the unbeliever uses those terms is that they are what society thinks at this time in history, today, on the 26th of June, what is just, what is right, what is of good report. Tomorrow it may change. See, in paganism, there's no guarantee of of immutability, of, of consistency, of stability, because you don't have a stable, infinite, unchanging reference point. So they can't even critique evil and the fact that, that well, how can you allow, have a God that allows evil? Well, where do you get the idea of evil if you don't have the idea of absolute perfection? What gives you the right to even use this language when you think ultimately that everything is relative and your basic starting point in life comes out of an evolutionary scheme that says that that which enabled evolution to take place is the survival of the fittest. To have survival implies conflict. To have conflict, that means one person, one creature is going to survive by destroying another creature, killing another creature. Death is the mechanism of Darwin's evolution, and death is what they see in the in the evidence of the fossils. For them, death is normal. Conflict is normal. Violence is normal. Because you have to have death, conflict, and violence in order to have an environment where the fit can survive. So unjust violence and warfare and conflict are normative for them. So they can't even talk about evil because that which they want to define as evil is necessary for their system to even work. So paganism is an entire web of thoughts that characterize the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world, and that we are no longer to think like that, and then we are to have individual thoughts and the content of our thoughts or to conform to the character of God. So we're to think differently, and we're to think about things differently. 
This is why the Bible comes along and says that what is important is that we have to have a renovation or an overhaul of our thinking. We're not to think like the world's culture around us. Culture. Now by culture, I don't mean you know, going to the symphony, going to opera, going to uh, theater, things of that nature. Uh, that's part of culture. But every group of people has culture. You have a culture in your family. You have a culture at your office. You have a culture in any given business, any collection of individuals is a culture. And culture is always downstream of a belief system, of a value system. What I mean by that is a person's values determines what they're going to do with their life and how they're going to solve problems and conduct themselves. That's culture. Culture flows out of their belief system of what's right and wrong, what has value. And where do you get those values? Well, you either get them from God or you get them from man. And man's values are always always changing, and they're not, uh, they're not dependable. So we are to be transformed, as Romans 12.2 says, we're not to be pressed into the mold of the thinking of the world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we may prove or demonstrate what is the good and acceptable perfect will of God or that God's will is good and perfect and acceptable. It's transformational, and it has to do with learning. It ultimately comes down to that which is, which is in the mind. Now, I had an interesting experience this last week when I went to this conference in Missouri. The conference was held at the College of the Ozarks. I've heard of the College of the Ozarks but knew nothing about it. And it is located just outside of Branson in uh, southern, southern Missouri. And it was a fascinating place, but the focus of that, of that school is to transform the thinking of their students. This church was founded by Presbyterian missionaries around 1900 in order to provide for the impoverished, ignorant, uneducated people of the Ozarks. So one of their... Uh, one of their requirements for students, for 90% of their students, have to come out of a, 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 a out of a background of poverty, uh, a background where where they're living way below the poverty level, and they don't have much of a background in um, in in a lot of things. And you can just imagine what what they're coming from. They have their mission statements. I'm going to read some of these things to you. They have these banners and these signs all over the school, all over the buildings, to remind the students of why they're there. Uh, Let me tell you, the students don't pay tuition. They have to work. Every student works. They have uh, a lot of different categories of jobs, but every student works on campus, and that covers about half of their tuition, and the the remainder comes from, from donations. The mission of the College of the Ozarks is to provide the advantages of a Christian education for youth of both sexes, especially those found uh, worthy, but who are without sufficient means to procure such uh, training. That's their overall mission statement. They emphasize uh, hard work. They have one side that said, Welcome to Hard Work You. That's the nickname for this for the school, where students work for their education. They don't pay tuition. 
They graduate debt-free, and they develop character. One of their, some of their other banners that they had that were up that I took some um, pictures of, they have a, the overall mission statement here is the, uh, oh, the vision statement is the vision of the College of the Ozarks is to develop citizenship, Christ-like character, uh, who are well-educated, hardworking, and patriotic. They have a patriotic goal. Their patriotic goal is to encourage an understanding of American heritage, civic responsibilities, love of country, and willingness to defend it. They have a cultural goal, to cultivate an appreciation of the fine arts and understanding of the world and adherence to high personal standards. And they have spiritual goals and uh, educational goals as well. They are doing what Romans 12.2 says. They are transforming the students from the culture that they came out of into this kind of a patriotic, uh, mature Christian culture. And part of what they do is they teach these kids good manners. Every kid on that campus, you'd run into them. They knew you were a visitor. They would, they would ask, well, welcome to our campus. We've heard a lot about your group. Uh, is there anything I can do to help you? Uh, Everyone, uh, they, they were the students were the servers at the tables for the meals and the cooks and the dishwashers and everything, and they were so polite and so nice. And if you had some problems, they would just do whatever they needed to do to find somebody to help you or to help you themselves, and it was just impressive. But I realized they didn't learn most of this until they started at that school. So that school had, an, a, had a fabulous system that they had developed for transforming these kids from whatever background they came from in order to prepare them to be uh, patriotic, spiritually mature contributors to society uh, when they graduated. And that's what we're to do in the church. Ephesians 4.17 is basically saying the same thing as, as Romans 12.2, that we're not to walk like the rest of the Gentiles, and then it describes that, so we know what that is, but we're to be different. And that's what will come after we get to verse, uh, verse 20. So the result of this changes not just what the believer does, but how he thinks. 2 Corinthians 10.31 says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Later, Paul will say, Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Well, that's, that's part of it. You're to do everything to the glory of God, even the things I don't like to do. Yeah, even the things you don't like to do. What comes to my mind is a statement that John Walvoord made to me one time. He was talking about a young man who was a seminary student and was also an elder in his church. And he said, whatever I asked him to do, no matter how much I knew he did not like doing it, he would do it better than anybody else. He was talking about Pastor Theme when he was a student at Dallas Seminary. So we are to do all things to the glory of God. 
That includes our work. Ephesians 6, 5 through 8 says, Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service. It's not just superficial. Not as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. You're not working for whoever your human employer is. You're working for the Lord in that slot. Doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And so the next thing that Paul will say is don't walk in the futility of their minds. He's saying that the Gentile world out there, outside those influenced by a Judeo-Christian worldview, they're operating on something that it has no purpose and meaning. It's in the futility of their mind. In English, the word futile means that it's something serves no useful purpose. It's completely ineffective. That's how God describes the thinking of the non-Christian because he starts as if there in his thinking as if there is no god that's why the scripture says the fool says in his heart there is no god because he says there is no god that's what makes him a fool so his thinking is empty it's futile no matter what brilliant things he comes up with because he doesn't have the a biblical divine viewpoint framework it's 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 empty it's the futility of their mind now, one view, the definition of, of uh, futility or the Greek word for futility is this word matayotes, which is translated in uh, futility. It can mean absurdity or it can mean uh, purposelessness. Now, in order to understand this words, we sort of have to be reminded of one of my favorite hermeneutical principles called the law of spandex. Just because you can wear spandex doesn't mean you should wear spandex, okay? Now, that's important to remember. Just because a word can mean something doesn't mean it means that in this context. Now, that's important for this particular word. This word basically means something that serves no useful purpose. It can also mean something that is empty, so some have taken the view that the main idea here has something to do with uh, emptiness or a vacuum, a vacuum in the soul. You have a vacuum in your soul because there's no truth there. You'll suck in all kinds of false doctrine. Now, that's true. That's a true statement. But is that what this word means in this context? Another nuance of this word is the idea of absurdity. Now, it's clearly true that the beliefs of the pagan world are absurd. But is that what it means in this context? Not at all. It has the idea of not being able to achieve its purpose. It's the futility of their mind. God created our minds to think God's thoughts after him, to think about reality the way God made it. Because of sin and our rebellion, we don't want to think about things the way God made them. And as a result, our minds don't achieve the purpose 
for which God intended them. Therefore, our thinking, the thinking of the Gentile, the non-biblical thinking is not achieving the purpose of God. It is futile. And that fits the meaning of this context. In Romans 8, 20, Paul uses the same word. He says, the, for the creation was subjected to futility. Now, this doesn't mean a vacuum. It means it's not achieving its purpose anymore once sin entered in. In Second Peter 2.18, for when they, that is the ungodly, speak great swelling words of emptiness. They have no meaning or value, no purpose. It's not that they are a vacuum. So even though those statements are true, this is one of the biggest dangers in a lot of preaching. People say things that are true, maybe biblically true, but it's not what that passage says. It's not what the word means in that context. Even though the theology preaches, uh, we can't preach that because that's not really what the word, what the word means. It's an emptiness that uh, it's a change that allows the mind not to achieve its purpose. So we'll continue with verse 18 next time, coming back and reviewing some of these concepts. But this is, this is the world around us. This is the Gentile world. This is the way they think. They can accomplish a lot of things. They can go to the moon. They can build skyscrapers. They can develop computers. But everything is done within a framework that is without purpose, without meaning, because only God can give it meaning, value, and, and purpose. And so they look at the human race as without meaning or value, and we're just the elite look at people as just tools to achieve their ends, whatever they are. And so we have to recognize that they are doing what they should do because they're spiritually dead. They have no other option. And for that, they should have our pity, but also we need to transform them by the gospel. And that's the focal point. It's always about giving the gospel no matter who you're talking to. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for these passages that give us a very uncomplimentary view of who we are as fallen creatures, as rebellious creatures who have succumbed to sin and who basically have a worthless, purposeless life. And it's just a facade when people think that they have some meaning and purpose in life apart from you. It is a cause of such depression, discouragement, suicide, violence, uh, drug addiction, all kinds of different uh, chemical addictions. Father, we, we know that the ultimate solution is only a transformation that can come from your word because Christ died on the cross for our sins, and there must be a spiritual rebirth, a regeneration. There must be uh, movement from spiritual death to spiritual life because of faith in Christ. That's the only solution that has any eternal value, any temporal value, any significance. We pray that anyone listening today, here or online or down the road in time, that will understand the gospel, the good news that there is a transformation, that we don't have to remain spiritually dead and hopeless and helpless that Christ died for our sins and the solution is to trust in him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that we will be challenged by what we must do, not be conformed to the world, that we should not walk like the rest of the Gentiles walk, not live like them, think like them, but be transformed, not easy, not quick, a challenge for a lifetime. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.